Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, but we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. It's comics. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. We have gone deep. Mm. <laughs> We've as, gone Barry White. As to boot style masculinity. <laughs> Our balls have finally dropped. And we are now masculine. Brimming with confidence. <laughs> and masculine appeal. <laughs> Machismo, I believe it is called. I'm George Takai. Oh my. Someone's not bustling with masculinity. <laughs> hey! Knock it off. Full of it, maybe. And on that note, <laughs> welcome to another episode. Oh, is that the tone of today? Yeah, pretty I much. thought it was somewhat subtle. But... No, in, 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 in what way was that subtle? Full of masks. Oh, yeah, well, whatever. Uh, today, Marvel's Eye of the Camera, one through six, there they are, real issues. Now, there's digital filth on this show. But first, do we have anything to talk? We don't really, do we? No. Far as everyone's concerned, this is just another episode. Although it's the last one that we'll be doing for some considerable time, because mm. you're swanning back off to unit this very day I am. as we record this. But it's now, this is the first one we'll have done in 2017, isn't it? I know. So, so that's very nice. So, happy New Year for three months ago, <laughs> whenever this one goes up. Uh, we've got a couple of emails rummaging around in the sack, rattling around in the sack. So, uh, our first one's Chris Franklin. Hello, Christopher. Uh, hello, Leylands. I hadn't thought of Lee's Punisher war journal work in years. I was just the right age to get into the Punisher at the time. It didn't hurt that my then brother-in-law, and now ex-brother-in-law, was a huge Punisher fan. And at one time, I had every appearance of the character. So, Punisher War Journal 1 was the perfect opportunity for me to get in on the ground floor. And I love the art. Lee really was a breath of fresh air, whilst perhaps not being completely original. In addition to some Potassio and Art Adams influences, I see some Howard Chaykin in there, particularly his Frank Castle face. I followed the title until Lee petered out on it, and then I was pretty much through my Punisher phase. The deal with Black Widow's strange ageing process reminds me of when Inglehart chose to take on comic book character ageing head-on in Justice League of America 144. As the leaguers flash back 20 years to specific publishing dates of those stories in the 50s, editor Julius Schwartz informs us that comic book time passes differently than our own. Now how's that for an explanation? It's the only way I can make 60-year-old Natasha looking so Jim Lee drawn hot work in my brain. Maybe she sipped a bit of Nick Fury's Infinity Formula. Great show as always, gents. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, has that ever been mentioned again that she was around in World War Two? I don't know. Because obviously she was a, a Cold War character initially, wasn't she? Mm. The Black Widow. So I don't know. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't get that she was in World War Two. I didn't. I didn't understand why Claremont did that. It confused me. Anyway, Chris continues with another email. We don't normally do two emails from the same person, but no. we're trying to empty our sack before we take Michael back. Hello, Leylands. I came to this episode with a bit of trepidation. 
I knew I would have to write him because I'm contractually obligated to. Yeah, I know. And I, <laughs> I've got that contract signed by Mephisto. Right. So Chris has to sign in. And if he doesn't, Mephisto goes and steals his marriage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he wouldn't, Cindy wouldn't like that. So he has to keep writing her. I know it makes Andy sad when I don't have an email in the sack, as evinced by this episode. But you know, I love you guys, but I'm not a fan of Scott Snyder's Batman. Yes, I'm that guy. Okay, to be fair, I haven't read much of his Batman. I have read some. It is very well written, let me say up front. No denying his immense talent on that part. But I just don't care for where he has taken the characters. Complicating the backgrounds of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson with all this retconned conspiracy does take away from the random futility of their parents' murders. And to me, therefore, a driving engine that propels the characters from then on. It's as if some shadowy organisation that was behind it all. Then their real foe is that, not crime in general. I understand the appeal of trying to put your own stamp on iconic characters like this, but every character seems to want to do it. I wasn't a fan of Morrison's run either for the same reason. I would argue the Batman universe was vastly different after both their runs, and they in no way put the toys back in their box when they were finished. Which I think should be the mission statement of every creator who works on a corporate-owned ongoing serial character. I think a true challenge for a modern creator would be to have an editorial mandate to come up with exciting stories about character X without monkeying with the established backstory. I'm not sure any modern high-profile creator would be willing to accept such a challenge. You know what I thought? I was just thinking about this the other day. I got Ed Brubacker and Matt Fraction's Iron Fist Volume 1 for free off Comixology. Right. And everyone raves about it. Ed Brubaker once said in an interview that, of course, the Iron Fist Netflix series was going to be based on that because how many other good Iron Fist stories were there? Okay. Which was a little bit egocentric, given yeah. that Chris Claremont's run on Iron Fist is absolutely brilliant. Mm. But anyway, I digress. And I'm reading it. And I'm going, you know what would be a really good challenge for, for writers now? Right. Give them Days of Future Past. Do you remember Days of Future Past, that hugely influential X-Men story? Yeah, yeah. That is two issues. Mm. Densely packed issues. Yes. With a lot going on. Yes. Give them those two issues and say, right, you've got to come up with stories that are like this. Okay. This densely packed, no more than two issues. Go on, see if you can do it. Right. Do you think any of them could? I don't know. Will it Will it fit into a six-issue truth? Well, see... Are um, the rumours that DC are trying to phase it out now? They're not trying to phase it out. They're trying to give... Because obviously it's more of a back catalogue money spinner for them, isn't it? Yeah. And it keeps the stuff on the shelf, so it's a good thing in that regard. But they're trying to put more emphasis on the weekly going and buying your comics to try to make that excited again. Mm. Just as Marvel's getting rid of the digital cords. Right, okay. So it seems to me that we've 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 entered this parallel universe where DC's now doing everything right, right. and Marvel <laughs> can't get anything right. Yeah. And it, it's really weird. But you know what he's talking about your your man Scott Snyder here. What do you think? And it's a valid criticism, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I guess my approach to it is every writer has the story with that character. Hmm. So if you if you read like Morrison's Batman as a different universe to the Snyder Batman. Yeah, if you came onto Batman after Grant Morrison, you don't have to put Damien Wayne in your stories. No. The best way to approach it, I think, is to just read it as a, as, a, as just a story. It's its own thing. Hmm. So it's not part of the overall narrative. Yeah. There's just different Batman. <laughs> different Batmans. Yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. 
Sorry to sound negative, continued Chris. It was a very entertaining show and Michael did a fantastic job running it. And honestly, you sold me on the story and execution, if not the concept. I think maybe now there is enough distance between my Batman, who honestly hasn't been really around since Chuck Dixon was kicked out of Gotham, and this, that maybe I should give these books an honest try, divorced from my misgivings of their place in canon, whatever that is this week. Oh, and I think that the only Thomas Wayne Jr. that existed before was in a one-off Brave and the Bold story that was considered non-canon almost immediately, written, of course, by zany Bob Haney. Chris, P.S. Loved the Lego Batman bit at the end. Brilliant. Well, that's all down to you. It is, yeah. Because I haven't, as of this recording, I've not even listened to that episode. <laughs> I thought having the Lego Batman would be a bit of a hoot. Uh, so there you go, all the people who, who I'm on shows with that moan at me. Yeah. I've not listened to my own show. <laughs> Because I didn't edit that one. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's on my iPod. I'll get around to it one day. And then I'll be able to criticise you for all the things that you did wrong that I wouldn't have done. That's fair. Which is what we always do, isn't it? That's why I don't listen to any of your shows. Yeah, because you why did you cut that? It was funny. <laughs> yes, but grossly offensive. I know. That's yeah, what, but still funny. That's why it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> See, the thing is, if I'm laughing at it heartily, I normally think I'd have to cut that out. <laughs> you can't tell me off if you're laughing. That's true. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne's emailed in, Crutch of Owls. Hello, 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 Echo, etc. You were right. Well, not really, but I thought I'd put a smile on your face up front. Actually, I don't know, you might be. I'm still at the start of the episode. It's always annoying to find out how trades are frequently assembled in ways that don't make logical sense. Seems to be more of a DC issue than a Marvel one, which could be wrong about. Oh, and Andy, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Capuo, not Capuo. Or it could be Capuo. <laughs> the only thing we're reading it. Yeah. How is it pronounced? I just say Capullo. I always say Capuo. Capuo. Yeah, I always say Capuo. Because there's that W in it, yeah. Right. But, cause Capuo. It, Italian, yeah, like Capo and Italian. Yeah, you're breaking my balls. I, I should have asked him when I met him. You should, you should have said, how do you pronounce your name? Is it Capullo or Capuo? I said Greg Capullo, and he didn't correct me. All oh, right, okay. Well, you've you've met the man and said that to his face first hand experience so I, I assume that he knows how to pronounce his own name you would think that you would think that so alright Capullo unless he's only ever seen it in writing <laughs> he's never actually said <laughs> yeah. his name even at school when they did registers yeah Greg yeah I'm here <laughs> could you live your life without ever hearing your surname said out loud no I don't think so I hear it all the time it's quite sad really I have to say it all the time as well Anyway, uh, Nathaniel continues. While I do think the Court of Owls volume is especially strong, the maze stuff is brilliant, I still really don't like Court of Owls for several fundamental reasons. I'm pretty sure I've written about this before, but I dislike it so much I'm doing it again. Now, as I said, Court of Owls did the impressive work of selling me on the wonky premise of the secret society in the Gotham's elite, that somehow the richest man in town, who's also the world's greatest detective, didn't know about. But it did actually pull that off. But then the whole attack on the city happens, and that's a leap of logic I can't make. It's quickly becoming one of my biggest storytelling pet peeves when a villain, or villainous organisation in this case, starts behaving in a totally different fashion once the audience is aware that they're the bad guys. But in story, there's no reason for the sudden heel turn in behaviour. See, Nathaniel's right about that. That bugged me in... Was it Spectre? Yeah. Where suddenly Blofeld's all about being open and honest, despite the fact he's been pulling the strings since Casino Royale and no one even knew he existed. Well, is it not because Batman's discovered that they're real? They, they can't hide in secret anymore because they don't have a secret. They could hide from everyone else, I suppose. They don't. They, Batman knowing about them doesn't mean anyone else knows about them. 
in the first instance. I mean, I suppose he would then build a case and present his evidence to Commissioner Gordon, and then Commissioner Gordon would know about yeah. it, and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, all right. I mean, it is it is a it is a bugbear. But I think with the Capullo Snyder stuff, it is so well written. You just go with it. I've never questioned it before, but yeah. Oh, I do sometimes. In the case of Court of Bowels, they go from a secret society, Court of Bowels, that managed to stay so far under the radio that even an obsessive paranoid like Batman didn't notice to literally plasting their logo across the sky and unleashing an army on the city, and all the Talons loudly announced that they served the coif of owls. What? Poppycock and bollocks, I say. And then the whole court gets killed. Hey, reader, everyone you thought you knew about Gotham is wrong and it's really run by this sinister organisation the whole time. Oh, never mind, they're dead. Come on. And then there's Talon. Dear God, I hate Talon. I hate his secret, but more than that, I hate that the story doesn't have the balls to stick with it and instead brings into question immediately. I know you guys praise this as having a bit of both ways of cleverness, but to me it rendered the whole twist pointless. Either lay out clearly that Talon is mad and has bought into the lie that he would never let go of, or pull the rug out from under Bruce. Don't shrug and go, could be either one, because it just smacks of thinking of a twist and then backpedaling, backpedaling out of fear of the fan backlash. But I think that's, that's Scott Snyder at the beginning, isn't it? He right. wasn't confident at the beginning, was he? See, I would disagree completely because I think sometimes the worst thing that you can do is to outright state something. Yeah, because this goes back to Chris's email that he's not left the toys back in the box when he leaves. I think Snyder did a better job of that than than Morrison did. Morrison left it. Oh no, well Morrison killed Damien Wayne, didn't he? Alright, so you can't argue then that Morrison did. He killed Damien. Morrison, the Batman Incorporated, is the last Batman story. Yeah. It just overlapped into the New 52. But it's definitively the last Batman story of that era. Mm. And the Scott Snyder stuff is definitively the first Batman story of the New 52. So arguably, Grant Morrison was in a position where he was allowed to wrap the whole thing up. Yeah. And even though, can you, I've not read it, but can you argue a case that another writer could have followed up Morrison on incontinuity Batman before New 52 and picked up where Morrison left off? Because he got rid of Damien. Yeah. He didn't bring Damien back, did he? No. DC brought Damien back. Mm. So that's DC not leaving all the the ties in the box. Yes. Right. Because Damien then sold. Yeah, someone, someone in the DC offices, the the whole Damien story got went over their heads and thought, "Hang on, he sells." No, that's not going over their heads. That's milking it. Yeah. But either way, so either way, Morrison did leave the ties in the box, and DC ultimately brought them back. And then again, I've not quite got to end game yet. Right. But again, doesn't Snyder leave Batman in the New Fifty Two in such a way that people could have followed him? Yeah, but there is something different about him which i won't spoil for you just yet because obviously i'm reading batman reborn by tom king yeah i've just i've not read it but apparently there's something big and different about his origin well i've not read i am suicide yet scott snyder had just done that right right okay basically you know at the end of endgame where batman dies yeah and then he has amnesia yeah basically gordon takes over as Batman. yeah without spoiling it he's now batman but he still has that amnesia. Mm. It got rid of his drive, so he's a different Batman. Right, okay. So you could could argue that he did leave it in such a way that somebody could then come along. It's not like when Bendis left Daredevil and he left Matt Murdock in jail. Right, okay. Is it? No. Right. Okay, fair enough. All right. Anyway, Nathaniel continues. And the icing on the shit cake is that talent is the fact that he will not shut up. 
The one and only good thing about the Batman vs. Robin animated film was how they handled Talon. There he was a dark mirror to Batman in a way that I, for one, hadn't seen before. Basically, he was Batman if Bruce had grown up poor instead of rich. Is that not the Wraith? Yeah. See, that's kind of... If you've not read it, Nathaniel, go and track down Batman special number one by Mike W. Burr and Michael Golden. The player on the other side is that. The Wraith is the other... Forget the sequel... (laughs) <laughs> you don't need the sequel that one issue is all you need and it's on Comixology for cheap mm. so go and check that out and let me know what you think uh, the difference in approach and tactics were informed by that key difference and the harshness of Talon's entire life versus a single harsh life event in Bruce this contrast is given extra weight by having the voice for Talon be Jeremy Sisto who played Batman in the New Frontier animated film it's both subtle and clever neither of which I would would ever apply to the comic version of this character yes the action's good though it's painfully transparent that the healing factor is a thing just so Batman can get away with using what would otherwise be lethal tactics but this big blowout finale completely undermines the mystery and creeping paranoia of the previous volume. It's like if Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy suddenly turned into Mission Impossible for the third act. Sorry guys, I know I haven't read all of it, and maybe with the full context it works better, but I continue to not see why you guys gush from every orifice over Snyder's run on these books. Still makes for jolly good listening though. Cheers, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, you know... It probably would have been better to read it before watching the animated feature. Why? Because, to me... Reading the emails, that seems where a lot of the disliking of the comics comes from. Mm. I could be wrong. What, the animated movie Batman vs. Robin did it in a very streamlined and... Yeah, it's like how you watch films and then you watch Blade Runner and you don't see why it was such a big deal because every film you've ever seen has played off from it. So you don't get the full impact of the original. Mm. Alright. Fair enough. Nathaniel also wrote us another email about Peace on Earth. Just giving a list to your Christmas episode covering Superman Peace on Earth. Goodwill towards Homo Sapiens. I have to say that this was a stellar listen, primarily because the two of you more or less played out the debate I was having in my own head in terms of the thought behind the message and the actual delivery of it. I kind of side with Michael more in this case, much to my shame. I'm not quite as cynical as he is about the thing, but the whole noble world message has a ton of inherent problems that the story doesn't really seem to overcome. Trying to balance a potentially preachy message while not trivialising a real world problem, the hero being doomed to fail at the outset, starting with homelessness in a story that's going to ignore that issue, and just how naive Superman is made to look. Which is a shame, because if there's any character that you can do this kind of story with, it should be Superman. But some messages are too big for even him to carry believably. See also Superman 4, though that one was kneecapped additionally with the tiny budget and crap filmmakers. It's just one of those cases where the real world issue is morally clear but a complete jumble of complication on a practical and logistical standpoint that trying to do the righteous moralising just doesn't work. And they even try and address some of the complexities but that doesn't fix this as a story issue. The world is screwed, Superman can't help, Merry Christmas. Oh, and on a final note, I couldn't not snicker every time you mentioned Pa Kent talking to Clark about spreading his seed. Apparently, I'm even less mature than you two are. <laughs> Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. And Nathaniel does all the, the Council of Geek stuff available on YouTube and various different podcasts. So go and check them out. Uh, there was an interesting Facebook conversation between me and Kyle Bennon about the Superman Peace on Earth episode as well, but I can't find it right now. But that was good, and I enjoyed Kyle taking part. Uh, the final email for tonight is from Chris. So it's a tag team today. It is, yeah. Which is also about Superman Peace on Earth, because as of this recording, we haven't released any other episodes as yet. Hello, Leylands. Well, you said you got in deep, and you were right. The pitfall of comic podcasting, both creating and listening, is sometimes when we dive deep into something we love, it kind of falls apart. 
I can't say I feel as good about peace on Earth now as I did before. I could be wrong, but I think Dini and Ross' intention was for these treasuries to appeal, at least in part, to children. Hence the storybook format and the focus on a child to kick off the story in each of them. So I think that accounts for some of the naivete. I can see the point Michael made about Superman doomed to fail as a fictional character, but it's really only because he's a serialised fictional character. If this were a done in one piece without the 75 years of Superman before and after it, Superman could have solved this and many other world problems, and we wouldn't need to have been concerned with these changes not reflected in our own world because we wouldn't be coming back to this one. It's already not our world, because as far as I know, we don't have a superpowered alien in tights flying around. If you've ever seen photos of Frank Kiese, Ross's model for Superman and Captain America, he's a fur-haired, ponytailed, often bearded fellow, or he was around this time. I think Ross's Superman has some George Reeves in it, but I always looked at him more of an aged Christopher Reeve, with a bit of Joe Shuster's Superman face and stocky build grafted on. Oh, and I do have that standee. It was a store display for this book, and when I left my old comic star clerk job, my boss gave it to me. It still overlooks my collection. Interesting discussion, and not the typical jolly fur I expected, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. And as you said, you did warm me. Can't hear the no doubt lighter swag episode, which will be coming, uh, has already come. As it according to this episode. Yes, I've not released it yet, but it will. Anyway, thank you to the people that emailed in. It was very much appreciated. Uh, we'll drop an ad in, and then we'll get on with Marvel's Eye of the Camera after these messages. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! William Buck Rogers. And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. The success of the 1994 miniseries Marvels led to many follow-up projects, but oddly, only one direct sequel. And even that took a long time to be announced and an even longer time to complete. Originally announced in 2003, Eye of the Camera saw writer Kurt Busiek return to the series that essentially made his name and was originally supposed to mark the 10th anniversary of the original series. Wizard Magazine even did an article on it. It was always a tad ambitious that a fully painted six-issue miniseries and a sequel to one of the most acclaimed comics of recent times would only take a year to come out, but nobody really thought another five years would elapse before its ultimate release. I can only assume that the delay was in some part due to Kurt Busiek's illness around this time, which saw Roger Stern assist him on his Iron Man writing duties, a function Stern also performs here, starting with issue 3. One key component of Marvels that is missing from Eye of the Camera is painter Alex Ross. It's Marvels that put Ross on the map, so him being missing from the sequel is odd. In his place, artist Jay Anacleto steps in to provide fully detailed pencils, and the decision was made to not ink the material, rather colour it straight from those pencils. I've always been a fan of this technique as it's close to the original pencils, as we readers tend to see, and I've yet to see pencilled pages I didn't think were an improvement on the finished work. What did you think? Of the art? Yes. It took me a while to like it. Yeah, I'm the same. I could appreciate what he was trying to do, mm -hmm. but... 
it, I mean, you could say this about Alex Ross as well. It looked boring to an extent. Yes. I, I don't want to say it's boring to look at because it's not. No. But as sequential it's a very, illustrations, it's kind of boring. Yeah, it's a very real world take on the Marvel Universe, isn't it? Because mm. there's an awful lot of this that the Marvels don't really have anything to do with it. This isn't a story about them. Mm. So he's drawing the real world a lot more. And if you're coming to this expecting Alex Ross's big splashy double page spreads and shots of the Human Torch and Galactus and all that stuff from Marvels, I think you're going to be very disappointed. Yeah. Technically, it's really good. Mm. But it's there's, there's something about it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong it, with it. It does without... Sounding very, you know, harsh towards the guy, it does sound a lot like we can't get Alex Ross. What's the next best thing? What's the alternative? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Marvel was so enamoured of Anacleto's work, they published two versions of Eye of the Camera one fully coloured, one black and white. Now, I got all mine from the cheapy bins and I finally amassed a full set, but the upshot of that because you can't be fussy yeah. when you're picking them up in the cheapy bins, is that I've got four issues in colour and two in black and white. I prefer the colour versions. Did you? I felt the art, because he, he uses his, his shading and he's smudging an awful lot. Yeah. I felt it was black and white. It's too... You have to look harder to, to make out what's going on. The colouring helps define the art. Yeah. Whereas, I, I don't... I don't deny I like the black and white version, hmm. but I don't think the colouring is a hindrance to it. Whereas there are times, I think, where I look at art in comics and think, oh, the colouring's not helping that. Yeah. For me in this, the colour helped it a lot. Right. Okay, fair enough. Just to refine it, really, I guess. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's fair to say that despite getting a trade paperback, Eye of the Camera never really steps out of the shadows of the original Marvels. Mm. And had Alex Ross been involved, I think that this would have, you know, at least it'd be mentioned in the same breath. But this seems to be ignored, or worse, just forgotten. Did you yeah. know about this? Uh, only because you picked it up. Yeah, because I was buying it in the cheap things. Yeah. Right, okay, fair enough. Um, for this, I, the, the point of doing this, I want to show why I think it's quite a worthy sequel. Right, okay. And I don't think it's as bad as everyone says it is, or it's certainly worth not forgetting Mm. whilst not being as good as Marvel's. Right, okay. But also, I wanted your impression of it, because you are a big fan of Marvel's. Yeah. Or certainly you were when you were a Primarily for Alex Ross, though, really. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? So how much did Alex Ross bring to this that this, therefore, doesn't have? Is that a hurdle it never gets over, Mm. that Alex Ross isn't involved? I think, yeah. Or should we get to that later on? We'll get to that later okay. on. Let me get the covers and the synopsis out of the way. Uh, Eye of the Camera issue one was covered dated February 2009. The cover for the first issue is a snapshot, as are all of the covers, presumably from Phil Sheldon's collection. This one is a shot of the thing causing a minor fender bender. If these are Phil's shots, he's not a very good photographer. <laughs> uh, the angle's weird. There's too much going on. To clearly determine what the focus of the image is, it's not that great as a cover. It's not, especially an issue one cover. An issue, and especially following up Marvels. Yeah. I personally think the best cover for this one, for issue one, would have been the cover for issue six. Because issue six is the best of the bunch. I know, but that's very symbolically a last issue cover, isn't it? Yeah, but that's the 
But when you, if you were grouping all this together as the trade, that would have been my choice as the cover. Yeah. But yeah, as a first issue cover, what what exactly is going on? The things that somebody's crashed into him. The cars are all too close together. The buses. There's too many. There's too much going on. It's too busy. Yes. And it's it's probably realistic. But as a cover, you're looking at it going, well, what what am I looking at? Just things behind. Yeah, I'm looking at the thing's ass. So, all right. He looks like he's he's walked past someone he used to know back in high school. Yeah, and he's just he's waving, waving at him. Them. Yeah, it doesn't look like he's, a car's crashed into him. So, anyway. Issue two follows this motif. Shot of Spider-Man swinging just above people's heads. Far lower than he normally swings. Anacleto does that stupid thing of having Spider-Man's features show through his mask. Yes, it's more realistic, but it's stupid. I like Knock that. It it's, off. it's the TV show, isn't it? Yeah. I like it. It's the Nicholas Hammond TV show where you can see the features through the yeah. mask. Do you, do you like seeing his mouth and his ears and his nose? And... Not all the time, but yeah. yeah. I think it looks silly. I might not want to see it in Amazing every week. No. Month. Whatever, whatever they're doing it. But yeah, yeah I, I quite like seeing it. All right. It's a good shot of Spider-Man. And uh, I like that they've got Spider-Man swinging above this guy's head, but he's still looking down reading these yeah, Spider-Man's and reading, Menace newspaper. In the Daily Boot. And there's only one kid who spots him. Yeah. But my my <laughs> issue with that is Spider-Man doesn't swing that low. He's what? Especially just where, over people's heads, isn't he? Especially look at it. He's not even on a, a straight line. So, he's actually, he's so when he swing swings there, he's going to hit that kid in the head, <laughs> isn't he? That's what the kid's looking panicked about. <laughs> Spider-Man's ass is going to thwap him. He's got a big face full of spider ass. <laughs> At least the webbing doesn't come from his ass. Uh, issue three is the Punisher blowing everyone away. He doesn't really look like the Punisher. It's a cool cover, but... So, for Phil to have taken that photo... Yeah. He's getting dead guys falling on him. Yeah. And Blood spatter. ducking underneath this gun. Yeah. Yeah, just hold it there, Frank. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, you could have got the brain splatter over somewhere else. I mean, did this I'm going to have to dry clean the coat. But, I mean, my issue with that is it doesn't look like the Punisher. If he wasn't wearing the school emblem, who would you, you think, think that yeah. was? That's fair, yeah. yeah it doesn't look it, anything like It kind like of also Punisher. leads you to believe that the Punisher is going to be a main character in the story. Yeah, and he isn't <laughs> yeah. at all. Uh, issue four is Iron Man 4 and the Vision flying above the crowds. Uh, it's fine for what it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's it, neat because I like seeing the Silver Centurion outfit. Yeah, and is there, what's his name? Is there a mixture there of people waving at them and shaking their fists at them? Probably, yeah. So, alright, because that ties into the story. Issue 5 is the new X-Men led by Wolverine, which are Storm with a Mohawk. Um, Psylocke, I think that is. Dazzler. Wearing whatever the hell Dazzler was wearing in the 80s. Which was more very... embarrassing yeah. than a 70s disco outfit, isn't it? To be fair, yeah. <laughs> 70s uh, became more timeless than the 80s. So, or, or 70s has a keech appeal. Yeah. Whereas the 80s just looks crap, <laughs> doesn't it? I, I don't know. I love a good headband. Do you? <laughs> well, she's got a good headband <laughs> on fire. <laughs> uh, Havoc, long shot, and his magnificent mullet. <laughs> um, Imagine that with a headband. The 80s. I know, yeah. Uh, let's get physical. And speaking of let's get physical, what the hell is Rogue wearing? Clearly, she watched um, <laughs> Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> one of those exercise workout videos. Did it, do you think Rogue did one of them? Probably. <laughs> Get in shape the mutant way. Yeah. <laughs> and Colossus is there as well. I, mean, I don't know what all that's about. Uh, we've already mentioned that I think issue six is the best one. It's a collection of photos from Phil's collection strewn over a desk. His eye patch and broken camera lie on top of them. Like you said, it's very symbolic of the whole series. Yeah. For, for reasons that will become apparent as we go through the story. Any of them stick out at you? 
Not really, no. No, I think I like issue two because I like how Spider-Man's drawn, but you're right. In terms of its position, he's going to smack into that crowd mm. when he starts coming down the angle of his swing. Um, I liked issue six. Issue six was my favourite. The rest were... They, you know. It's, it's kind of like the, the Alex Ross covers to, to Marvel's are all of pretty much the same thing. It's Spider-Man climbing up a wall. Of, of yeah, issue. but it's the first time we'd ever seen anything like that. I know, but it's also more... Maybe not dynamic, mm. but there's something about it. There's that, the shock of the new. Yeah, I suppose. It was new but, when he did it. Yeah, but they stick out. They're still used now. Yeah. And there's just something stronger about it. Yeah. It's like Alex Ross could make the Unreal look real, whereas this, it looks too real. Yeah, it looks so real as to be dull. Yeah, like I don't, I don't know what to say because they're both doing the same thing, but... Differently. differently. Yeah. <laughs> Stop that, David. <laughs> All right, synopsis time. Uh, Phil Sheldon, our freelance photographer, is bored. He's considering taking a permanent position at the New York Bulletin, but when the arrival of the Fantastic Four heralds the dawn of the age of the Marvels, Phil sticks with the freelance life. The FF are quickly followed by Ant-Man, Thor, Spider-Man and some strange Hulk, and Phil feels that New York is changing. The arrival of mutants, the next stage in human evolution, causes some to panic, with calls for all mutants to be locked up, irrespective of if they have actually done anything. Years pass. Phil finally visits where it all began, at the launch pad of the Fantastic Four shuttle. It's a pilgrimage of sorts before a visit to the hospital turns Phil's life upside down. Phil Sheldon has cancer. Phil swiftly goes into denial, choosing to concentrate on his new book, all about the villains rather than face reality. However, a chance meeting with Spider-Man puts Phil back on course. All his life he's been about capturing the heroes doing the thing, saving the world. That's what gave his life meaning. He returns to his wife Doris to tell her he'll be making the doctor's appointment tomorrow. He has his focus back. As Phil readies the book, trying to come up with a compelling theme, he sees a world around him that is darkening. New heroes like Ghost Rider, the Punisher and Wolverine are far more bloodthirsty than usual. And even Phil finds his belief shaken when Spider-Man fails to prevent the death of Hitman. Phil spirals downward, the treatment hitting him hard. Every story about the Marvels is worse than the last, until Phil is asked by an old friend to go with him to take photos of the Beyonder. The doctors have encouraged Phil to get out more to help with the recovery, but this, witnessing the possible death throes of planet Earth following the Beyonder's attack, may be too much. Instead, however, Phil is rejuvenated, as he sees heroes and villains work together to heal the planet. Feeling better than he has in a while, Phil rejoices only to be told that the cancer has metastasized. It's now just a matter of time. The news hits Phil hard. He starts focusing on the book, but the medication keeps him going, but concentrating is difficult. His two daughters help out as best they can, but the world seems to be spiralling more and more out of control. He tries to work. He's witness to the original X-Men fighting Tower, but no longer has it in him. The last picture Phil Sheldon will ever take is of the mutants. Life goes on. The Avengers battle the Hulk and then the Masters of Evil take over Avengers Mansion as Spider-Man is accused of throwing a fight with Titania. The FF move into Four Freedoms Plaza and Magneto is tried in France. Phil finds himself feeling weaker and weaker, wondering if what he has done with his life even has any meaning. As he dozes in a hospital room, he is visited by Maggie, the mutant girl he and Doris looked after years ago. As the X-Men fight in Dallas, Maggie tells Sheldon that she left to protect his family. With Bolivia Trask creating the Sentinels to hunt down mutants, Maggie felt they would be hurt if they continued to harbour her, and so she fled to Papua New Guinea. There she lived with a tribe until she learned of Phil's illness and came back. 
Phil inspired her to be more, and she used her mutant power to help the tribe with their medical problems and teaching their kids to read. At that moment, it is revealed that the X-Men have perished. Phil's family enter the room, eager to see Maggie. As they catch up, Phil realises his legacy is assured. They are in front of him, his children, the mutant he saved, Marcy Hardesty, the young girl he mentored. It's all though. Not a bad legacy, he thinks, as he closes his eyes for the last time. At his funeral, the New York press gather to pay respects. Doris and the kids say they will finish Phil's second book, and Marcy offers to help. She apologises for being late. She was at a parade for the X-Men when Latverian stormtroopers tried to kill Doctor Doom. A parade for mutants, says Doris. Phil would have liked that. Oh, oh very sad. Mm. Oh, they're, they're sad. Or is it very happy? Or is it is it uplifting? Mm. Mm. Who can say? Uh, chapter one is... Well, we'll probably say. Uh, chapter one is called Just One Little Thing, which reminds me of Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more thing. Um, Phil is going through the motions, walking through the park. Nothing seems to penetrate his heart. Very bored. Interestingly, the corner of the bugle has a small inset photo with the headline, Did Reed Richards Launch Without Federal Approval? This, which is exactly what Phil's looking for. Something new. I don't know who that guy is in the picture, though. Yeah. But it ain't Reed Richards. Is it? No. Is that just some random dude? It's just like a bloke, yeah. They didn't have a picture of Reed Richards. J. Jonah Jameson. He looks, he looks like the main character of a backdoor pilot for a detective TV show. <laughs> it looks like Janus thought nobody knows what Reed Richards looked like. Just, He's never going to be anything. Yeah. Who's going to care? Oi, Rick, do you mind just, you know, standing there while I take a picture of you? Yeah, that's it's 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 not Reed. That's all I want to say. Um, this issue of Eye of the Camera takes place before Marvel's issue one, which I thought was bizarre. Why? Why did you think that was weird? It's it's one of those uh, stories where months can take place in the space of panels. Yeah. Without specifying that. Yes. Yeah. And it felt really weird for the first issue of a sequel to be to a prequel. Be set. Well, it's not a, pre- a prequel, is it? Because Marvel starts with the first Human Torch. So that's World War Two, then, isn't it? And this starts with the Fantastic Four. Yeah. So it's set in and around the, the first one. Yeah, yeah, without you're right. specifically saying it. Yeah. And to me, is irrelevant. Do you think this this first issue is irrelevant? In my opinion, Eye of the Camera starts with issue two. Right. Okay. Fair enough. See, I I didn't mind the first one because it's Boosie getting the chance to cover some ground that he didn't get to cover in Marvels, but he's also setting up Phil's family life as well. Yeah, that's one of the things that struck me is how completely different it is to Marvels. Yes. In Marvels, Phil is just the audience's eyes. Yeah, he's our avatar. To look into the yeah. rest of the world, whereas this, it's the heroes don't matter, it's about Phil. Yeah, the heroes are irrelevant to this story, mm. aren't they? Which is something we'll talk about more as we go along. Because uh, one of the things Marvels did really well is what you were talking about earlier on. It put the Marvel Universe in the real world. This is doing the same thing, but this is the evolution of that idea. If Marvels began with the Human Torch and then it cuts straight to the Fantastic Four already being celebrities, doesn't it? Yeah. Here, Sheldon's on the White House lawn when the Fantastic Four give a press conference. Which made some kind of sense, because if you think about it, the rest of the world weren't there when the Fantastic Four fought them all, man. 
Yeah. So this is them basically announcing their arrival to the world, isn't it? They've not got the costumes yet. Mm. So that was a nice touch. And I think... I felt that this was a... It's not a better story than Marvel's. It's an interesting direction to take it in after you've done Marvel's. Yeah. That you suddenly focus on a real person. You don't want to do the same thing twice. No, and then maybe that's what held him back from doing a sequel for so long. I mean, it's because he became such... A, a well-known character from Marvels that hmm. he just wanted to tell his story. Well, he starts cropping up in other things, doesn't he? When yeah. they do flashbacks, mm. he's, there's an issue of Untold Tales of Spider-Man that he's in. Right. Establishing that he was always there. So yeah. he doesn't have any lines, I don't think. He's just there. Right. So you accept that he's always been around. Again, the introduction of the Fantastic Four is a full-page splash that Anna Clanto doesn't quite pull off. That human torch is taken straight from Marvels. Yeah. And is reader again? Who's who's that guy? He's aged considerably He's in aged, the time yeah. he spent in space. Yes, since that picture on page two, he looks completely different again. He Sue, now looks forty years old. Sue Storm looks like she's been shouted at by a boss, <laughs> and she's telling him to calm down. Sue just looks like a generic blonde woman. Yeah, I don't make a Sue Richards, does it? Mm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, one of the things that's interesting to read from this is reading it from the point of view of Phil as old school comics fan. And grumbling yeah. about heroes incorporating, like the Fantastic Four, basically setting themselves up as a company. Yeah, well, they wouldn't do that in my well, day. It's it's kind of um, interesting to read it now as mm. well, with with the world being how it is, yeah. and with comics being darker. This is basically a commentary on yeah the the DC era of of comics and how totally darker they are, and also the nineties. It's, yeah. it's concentrated now. The 70s darkened things up and the 80s lightened up a little bit. Mm. But then, as we get into the 90s, Phil probably wouldn't have recognised any of these people. Yeah. But it's still appropriate to read. Yeah. Now. Yeah, it still works, doesn't it? And part of the tapestry of the story is, like we say, it's establishing characters as being part of the overall Marvel universe. Yeah. Before we actually meet them. Mm. So Ben Urich is a very important part of this story. Yeah. But he doesn't actually appear until Daredevil 153 in 1978. Mm. Yet here we've got him working at the Daily Bugle as the Fantastic Four appear. Yeah. So Ben's always been there. And again, that's something when they've done flashbacks, Ben Urich was always at the Daily Bugle, even though he wasn't. Right. So um, it's a third of the way through this issue that this jumps to after Marvel's number four. So like you were saying earlier on, there's huge chunks of this were a great big passage of time takes place with no indicator. Mm. So on that double-paid spread there, suddenly we're after Marvels. I would have started it with the launch site. Would you? Yeah. I mean, I, I know I'm not a big Marvel writer, but this is where I personally would have started it. You no, know, I, I kind of think you, it makes sense because this epilogue to issue one is the prologue to Eye of the Camera. Yeah. I don't think you're wrong. That None of that is necessary. We, we know all of that. It just kind of sets up the themes of this story. Yeah, but you get that as you go through it anyway. You get that Phil's a bit bored. You get that Phil possibly wants a regular job now instead of being a freelancer because he's got a family. Yeah. You get that as you go through the issues anyway. To have opened with this these four pages here, three pages as the prologue, and then kick straight into issue two, yeah, there's probably no need for this to have been six issues. Mm. It could have been five and done the job just as well. But, you know... There was a thought bringing continuity and nitpicks back for this as well. Right, I did okay. think about doing continuity, yeah, but <laughs> the trade paperbacks 
got a handy sources section. Right. So we didn't need to bother. Because it's, okay. it's on the internet if you want to go and look it up. Yeah, yeah. The, the trade paperback stuff's down there. Uh, there are general references in this issue to Spider-Man, Doctor Strange and Ant-Man. Specific references to Thor fighting Loki from Journey into Mystery 85. And the FF's money problems and subsequent movie from Fantastic Four number 9. I wonder if the Fantastic Four's film in universe is better than any of the movies we've got. <laughs> I wonder if they, the film was the one that we got. <laughs> Can you imagine just... the Thing's reaction to that? Why have I got no pants? <laughs> More importantly, why have I got no wiener? He'd have found those directors and producers and he'd have pounded them into paste, wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. You are proof! Pulls his pants down. <laughs> That's a very Kevin Smith thing, isn't it? Though? It is a very Kevin Smith thing. But here's the thing. In that film, was it not sillier that he didn't have any genitalia? Especially seeing as we get a real big close-up of his ass later on. Right, okay. So I didn't, I didn't understand <laughs> that at all. That to me is, well, the blue pants are stupid. Right. So let's not have him wear any. Okay, but then how do we get around full frontal nudity? Let's not have him have anything. It's like an action man doll, though, isn't yeah, it? It's just it's ridiculous. Ben would not be impressed with that film. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Uh, issue two was making sense of the world. Phil is given the news that he's got cancer. And he's, his reaction's very realistic. Yeah. Isn't it? He, he immediately goes into denial. And I, I did wonder how much of Busiek's own illness, which apparently was quite serious right. at the time that this was going on, played into his, his writing of this scene. Phil immediately starts worrying about his legacy when, you know, what he's going to leave behind. But he's got a legacy. He's got his kids. But That's just, your legacy. He's just blinded yeah. from that. He's, he's, at the moment, he's more concerned that his work is his legacy. Mm. And, you know, very few people leave behind something like that. I did like that when he goes to the publisher, you've got posters on the wall yeah. from other projects. Marvels by Phil Sheldon has got the Alex Ross shot of Giant Man. Mm. The upshot on, on Giant Man, which I thought was really cool. But if you have a look closely, the other ones, though, there's Grant Marshall has written a book who was in It, the Living Colossus. Okay. And Montague Hale has written a book and he was a member of the Sons of the Serpent. My personal favourite because of Fantasticast, is there's one there called Life on the Gridiron by Coach Sam Thorne, who's a minor tangential character in the Fantastic Four. He was the coach when the Human Torch was at college. Okay. Johnny didn't stay in college long because he's not very academic. Right. But he kind of had a relationship with Doctor Doom. Okay. And because of that, he got a book out of it. Right. I love that. He's turned that minor brush with celebrity into a best-selling novel. Fair play, Coach Thorne. I approve wholeheartedly of your tenuous way of getting money out of tangentially knowing the Fantastic Four. People have gotten much famous for much less. Yes, that's very true. At least he's got a brush with fame. Exactly. You know, just because you're on Big Brother don't make you famous. (laughs) Apparently he does. Yeah. Who can say? Um, one of the things that this did make me think about was how hard it would be to cover the news in the Marvel Universe. At what point would the umpteenth rampage by the Incredible Hulk not be news anymore? You just get bored of it. Yeah. Well, it's. I remember uh, Michael Bailey said a while ago, I've probably mentioned it several times, is if you live in the DC Universe, mm. why have you not killed yourself yet? <laughs> 
you know, gods are attacking you every day. You either get bored of it or you just can't hack it anymore. Yeah, it, it is a world where you think, is there going to be an alien invasion this week? Yeah. Can you imagine what insurance premiums are like in the mm. Marvel and DC universe? Well, that's what... Superhero cover. That's what that Powerless show was going to be Is about. that what that's about? Well, they've changed the concept of it now. Oh, right. But initially it was an insurance company in the DC universe. So what's it going to be now? It's... They're now working for a Wayne company which creates... Uh, technology to protect you from superhero attacks. All right, so you know, not not hundred miles away. Not a hundred miles away, right. but it, it's to me, it's a lot less funnier than yeah, a an DC insurance, insurance company, company would be funnier. Yeah, wouldn't it? Well, we're not paying for that. <laughs> act of God. Sorry, Act of God <laughs> isn't covered. Thor is not a god. A, a demigod. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, so yeah, the divorce of Sue and Reed would probably get more headlines, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's a gossip. Scandal rag thing that's going to be on the next to the Cardassians, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the soup or whatever that thing was called. <laughs> was that an e news thing? I don't know, I don't know, I just remember it. Um, very rarely is mutant hatred covered from the man on the street perspective. Sorry, Boussiet does a really good job of it, uh, in only a very few short scenes in the bar, which I thought was quite good. And Bill, Phil, Bill, mm. Bill Felden. Right. He's related to Phil Sheldon. Okay. Um, he's not very big on the bigotry. I do like that Phil Sheldon doesn't like Peter Parker. I like that as well. That he thinks Peter's a hack. Yeah. Who just takes photos of Spider-Man doing shitty stuff because Juno wants him to. Yes. And I thought that was really good. Because, again, I'd never really given any thought to what the other photographers thought of Peter. Mm. He just breezes in off the street. Gets a job because Jonah offered a reward and suddenly he's getting all the best assignments. Yeah, it's one of those perspective things, isn't it? Yeah. We're seeing it from someone else's. Yeah, because Peter's never had any formal training as a photographer, has he? No. Phil presumably has. Yeah. So I could see why Phil would be a, a Man of the Year award ceremony for Peter getting a photographer's award mm. and being annoyed about it. <laughs> so I, th- I thought that was really cool. I also like that despite the grounding and realism of this... He didn't ignore that 70s Marvel was frequently off the wall crazy. With a giant rabbit. Yeah, so you've got the giant rabbit from Doctor Strange number one. And a lot of these ideas were treated as as straight, albeit tongue-in-cheek, because that's what Marvel did. But you've got this really quite grounded story about how the Marvels fit into the real world and Phil having cancer. And on TV there's this report about this giant rabbit. Yeah. (laughs) I like that it just mentions it and then moves on. It yeah. doesn't take the piss or anything. Yeah, it just... It's, it's, well, to them, it's news. Yeah. It's, to them, it's there is a giant rabbit in Central Park. Mm. This isn't a B-lister thing. It's the... Yeah. So I, I did. I really like that. I thought that was really cool. So it's kind of like, though, Batman's costume is silly if you point out that Batman's costume is silly. Yeah, you have to don't, accept that it's not. Yeah, don't mention that a giant rabbit's silly. Just mention it and yeah, move on. there's a giant rabbit in Central Park. There's a what? <laughs> yeah, sure. Here, yeah, look. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, Phil goes out and gets mugged, and Spider-Man saves him. How did Peter get away from the party? A party that has been held for him mm. as a nominee for Photographer of the Year. Well, why did Peter... Did he just follow Phil yeah why no, well I suppose he noticed a certain level of distress went out to check if he's okay saw the the, the hooligans hooligans and, and got and got changed <laughs> alright but then he's piss wet through because it's pouring down when he goes back to the party are people going to notice that he's got wet hair he says he's nipped out for a bit oh he nipped out for a cig yeah alright but Peter you don't smoke uh. I didn't say that to be mine <laughs> I went out for Jonah's cigarettes alright fair enough I like this issue 
I thought this was Phil getting coming to terms with what's happened to him, and it's like it's all right, isn't it? Mm. It's quite good. The adverts for any year of Marvel, I really don't care about. I know, yeah, I, I like um, reading setup adverts for big events and going, well, that turned out to be nothing. Oh yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, Secret Invasion is all over these. Ultimatum is all over these. I, I, I yeah, I forgot about Ultimatum, but I still like Secret Invasion. I don't remember either. Secret Invasion was alright. That... If you were just reading Avengers. Alright, so if you don't read all the other stuff, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, issue 3 is Shadows Within. Uh, the tone of both Marvels and this are very different. Yeah. Aren't they? Um, Boosie X uses this tonal difference to talk about the difference between 60s Marvel comics mm. and 70s Marvel comics. He makes the point through Phil that there are certain storytelling devices that comics, Marvel in particular, but comics generally, use over and over again. The heroes being brought low, accused of crimes and misdemeanours, rather than the heroism of the 60s. But even though the 60s, there were frequently stories of Captain America being disillusioned by his country, and Peter Parker wanting to quit being Spider-Man, and the Fantastic Four breaking up, and all of this has happened before, all of this will happen again. Mm. So there's the cyclical nature of, of comics. But Phil's question, are we only interested in fear and failure? When was this written? 2003? Yeah. And it's now 13, 14 years later? Mm. And if anything, it's just worse? Yeah. Well, it's, what I've never... <laughs> One of the things I've never understood, really, is why you would hate someone who's, who's saved the world countless times. Yeah. And it's it's this kind of addresses that to a certain level yeah without and, going and, the whole civil war and you could say route. like we, we, we are only interested in failure hmm. we think about it on a very harmless level you've been framed yeah a TV show about fail messing up yeah exactly yeah. that's what we're interested in saying we're, no we're one, like watching people fall yeah no one really cares if, if you succeed it's just funny to watch if you it's fail. not that I must succeed it's that everyone else must fail there you go <laughs> great man I think it was Genghis Khan <laughs> well said yeah, all right. I mean, one of the things that, again, you mentioned earlier on that I said we'd get into later is the Marvel time thing. Marvel time is one of the things that requires a huge suspension of disbelief. It's in five years from what I've been told. And if, yeah, as Chris Franklin mentioned in his email earlier on, what Julia Short says, comics move at different times. Yeah. What you've got here is Marvel's was clearly set in the 60s. Yes. This is clearly set in the 70s. I mean, just look at what Danny Rand's wearing. Is that Danny Rand? Oh, no, he's just a kid talking about Iron Fist, isn't he? I'm absolutely made up with his his Rupert pants (laughs) and his his wide lapel leather jacket and and the afro on that bloke on the next page, which is absolutely fantastic. The thing is, the 70s are never as evocative as the 60s, although the 70s are more interesting visually than the the 80s. How many different tones of brown can you have? Yeah, whereas the 80s went the opposite way and was all day-glow colours, wasn't it? Yeah. But I think the 70s... There's something about the 70s that's just endlessly fascinating. Right. It's that everyone's downtrodden and miserable. The 70s were miserable for everybody. Right. Across the board. Okay. And all your fashions are brown. Yeah. And beige. Yeah. And utter... Big collars. Yeah, big collars and your, your horrible polyester shirts. But there's something about the fact that it's it's not that long ago that everything's still recognisable. Right. So cars are big and clunky, but they're still cars. Telephones yes. are big and clunky, but they're still telephones. So it's not like when you're watching stuff from the 40s and 50s, where the cars aren't cars. Mm. They're them big chugabooms. Well, that's what we have now, though. Cars, yeah. cars are less big and chunky in the 70s than they are now. Yeah, so it's that's what I like about the 70s. 
Right. There's a grittiness to 70s stuff that you don't get anymore mm. that wasn't fabricated. Right. That's what the 70s were like. The 70s were miserable. Watch Get Carter. Right. The 70s were miserable. Watch yeah, yeah. Um, Callan. I love that uh, Life on Mars yeah. was filmed in Manchester because <laughs> yes. it still looks mi- as miserable as, as it was in the, the 70s. Well, it did then. Manchester's gone through a lot of urban renewal since 2004, hasn't it? Right. When Life on Mars was made. Oh, Manchester might have. Have you taken a walk through Salford? <laughs> well, that's what a lot of it was filmed in Salford and Bolton because <laughs> yeah. Bolton and Salford are still a little bit in the 70s. Yeah. But yeah, so this this... It's not as interesting visually as the 60s comics are, although I do have a soft spot for the 70s, for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, Nice point that due to mutation, the general public didn't think that the Beast in the Avengers was the same guy in the X-Men. Yeah. I thought it was really good, because is that Busiek covering that the Avengers were never targeted as mutant lovers in the same way of the X-Men? Mm. even though they had a mutant on the team. And is that because they didn't know that this was the same beast? It could be, yeah. I mean, did they look at him and go, he's not a mutant, clearly. Mm. How would you do that? He's blue and covered in fur. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Busiek also examines the proclivity that X-Men had for wiping people's minds, which fills a little bit... He's not happy with that, is he? Which is understandable. Yeah. yeah. Professor X just mind wipes people. <laughs> ah, you don't need to know. Who I in, am. in the same story, he says he'll he'll never abuse his powers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. And then he doesn't like Ghost Rider or the Punisher, and it's very definitely he thinks that the Punisher is a villain, not a hero. Yeah, it's, because he kills people. It's it's that commentary on why can't Batman kill? Why yeah. doesn't? Because the minute that he kills, he's not a hero. Yeah. He's a murderer. Mm. Even though there are instances where you're like, well, that guy needs putting down. Batman's not the guy to put him down. Yeah. I mean, the Joker probably would have been sent to the electric chair any number of times now, but he's not going to be because he's the Joker. Although, counter-argument, Captain America was a soldier. Captain America was a soldier in times of war he kills. Yeah. But in peacetime, he doesn't. He doesn't go around blowing people away (laughs) regularly in the street, does he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a difference, though. Um... Spider-Man not saving Hitman is one of the massive blows to Phil that's mentioned in this story. However, this is one of those instances where Phil is unaware of the circumstances. Spider-Man had a dislocated shoulder in this story. And he's hanging from one of the arms of the Statue of Liberty. Holding J. Jonah Jameson with the other hand. He, He couldn't have done anything to save Hitman. Yeah, And the Punisher has a choice to save Hitman or save Spider-Man and he saves Spider-Man. Right. So Spider-Man doesn't cause the Hitman to die. Mm. That's nothing to do with him. He's in exactly the same predicament. The Punisher elects to save him because he's not even in a situation where he can use his web shooters. Both his hands are busy. Yeah. So this Spider-Man couldn't do anything well, about it. Later on, doesn't he also question whether Spider-Man did the right or wrong thing by letting a murderer die? Yeah, but I, I don't think he did. Hmm. I mean, the, that panel shows him fall and maybe Spider could have webbed him at that point. I don't know. I suppose it's just a perspective thing, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's one of them, did Spider-Man let him die or did he die? Yeah. Did Spider-Man know that he, he through in his, in his inaction, did he let the guy die? And mm. I, I think that the comic is written, I mean, I've not read it for ages, but I think the comic is written to be ambiguous that Spidey couldn't have done anything about it. Right. Rather than having it be written that Spider-Man let this guy die, mm. which is two slightly different things. 
And then in the back of this, there's an ad for Black Panther, but Black Panther's now a woman. No, he marries Storm. Oh, he does marry Storm. Yeah, but that Black Panther is clearly a woman. She's got boobs and everything. Maybe that's Storm. Maybe it is. Maybe Storm took over as Black Panther. I don't know. Never read it. So <laughs> I can't possibly say. But I thought Black Panther was handed off to your children, not your wife. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe as king of Wakanda, he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> I'm changing the rules. <laughs> yeah. Pray I do not alter them further. But but you can't do that. Why? I'm, I'm the king. Yeah, yeah you, you seem to be under this misconception that I am not the king. <laughs> if I want to change the rules of being Black Panther, I will change the rules. And my wife is now Black Panther. Deal with it. <laughs> okay. Jeez, I'm only pointing out that for hundreds of years, this is how it's been. Well, maybe it's time for a change, right? It's the problem. We don't let our leaders lead. <laughs> says T'Challa. <laughs> I will now rule Wakanda with a fist of iron. <laughs> uh, Deep Wounds is the next issue. The opening to the recap unintentionally made me laugh. Right. I'm Phil Sheldon and I'll be dead soon. <laughs> it's Yul Brynner. And I'm, I'm dead now. I'm Yul Brynner and I'm dead now. I don't think that's quite what Kurt Busiek was going for, do you? Probably not. <laughs> Although I was wondering why I saw a, a bald guy with an eye patch on Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe Westworld would be a bit faster moving if that happened. Uh, Busiek has talked, as have we, throughout the, uh, the run of this series that... Um, of the cyclical nature of comics, specifically superhero comics. Again, he goes through stories that have been repeated in the past decade since this was published. Mm. So you've got an image of Captain America with the Nazi sign on his flag. That's been a recent story development that he was part of Hydra. Um, the FF have disbanded before. They will again. Iron Man killing somebody is big news. Uh, nowadays, he decapitates people and kicks their head around <laughs> like a football. So... <laughs> Not really a big deal anymore, is it? Spidey and the Punisher tackle the mob, and there's uh, lots of references there. There's Spy, there's Reed Richards as the Molecule Man, which was a good story. George Perez did that. A lot of really cool references there. Um, we've already mentioned using Sheldon as the avatar for comics fans. Phil Sheldon's attitude to the Silver Age has been the golden period of comics, mm. the golden period of the Marvels, and his dislike of the the darker turn that comics took in the 70s and 80s you can easily read that as commentary on fans yeah and how people that came in in the 70s and 80s didn't like the bleakness of blackest night Mm. so it's everything's cyclical yes nothing changes this issue uh, as mine is in black and white the art in this is actually quite good now that i'm looking at it i see what you mean some of the panels are a bit like he's gone too far on the pencil rendering Mm. but I like it. I'm not saying it's bad. Yeah. Because it, it is good. It's just hard to read sometimes. Yeah, that's true. And Especially when he does his montage panels. Yeah. Yeah, they, they are a bit busy, aren't they? Mm. When he does the montage panels. I'll give you that. See that? The bottom of page two. Yeah. That panel there Being is Being in colour helps to refine it. Yeah. Helps to define who the characters are. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Uh, Bullseye kills Electra. Oh, and I love that it's still impenetrable cloth. Yeah. Well, what I like about that is if you look at how Alicanta's done it, you can actually see the blade through the cloth. Yeah. So I thought that was quite cool. But there's blood running down his hands this time, mm. where I don't think Frank Miller was allowed to show that. But that that's a great panel. 
that's a great reenactment of, of that that Frank Miller stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff about Henry Pym in this. Hank Pym being exonerated, which is a great Avengers story by Roger Stern. But Sheldon's comment that the controversy of him hitting his wife will never go away, that's become quite um, prophetic, hasn't it? Right. That that's become his defining characteristic. Mm. That's what he's known for. Oh, well, he hit his wife. Well, it's... it's the... Certainly Mark Miller would take that and run with it. Yeah, but it's, it's grounding a superhero, I guess. Like, yeah, he, he beats up bad guys all the time, mm. but he hits his wife, and it's a real-world bad thing, I guess. Which ties into the story. Yeah. This, he's looking at the, the heroes having feet of clay, which was always the Marvel thing, mm. that you, the, the heroes were normal people. And then you've got... This has to be the serious, the biggest leap of time in the entire series, because you go from the Spider-Man Fantastic Four stuff, which is still in the 70s, and then suddenly you're at Elektra being killed, which is late 70s, very early 1980s. Mm. And then the next page, you've got the Punisher mowing people down in the street because he's cracked up. That was the mid-80s, early to mid-80s. And then you've got Secret Wars, which was 1984. Yeah. So in the space of, what, six pages here, he jumps six to eight years in the future, mm. in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in Marvel time. Now, we start this issue mentioning the breakup of the FF, which took place in 1977, publishing time. Okay. And then, like I said, Secret Wars is 1984. And then, two pages later, we're at Secret Wars 2, which was 1986. Right. So there's an awful lot of time covered oh, in this Secret one Wars issue. 2? Yeah, Secret Wars 2 is when the Beyond is on Earth. All right, okay. So, like you said, there's an awful lot of time in this. Well, you're not really clued in that an awful lot of time has passed. Yeah. You've just got to well, kind of figure that out Maybe not as you go an awful along. lot of time has passed. And comics time does move differently to our time. Yeah. Which, it, it, it works. Because we've complained about the five-year timeline in Batman Lords. Yeah. It's only by giving it a timeline it stops working. Yeah, so by just compressing it like this and just accepting it, yeah, it doesn't really matter that it's much. It's like the New Frontier thing. Yeah. The the stories it's based on came out you know, decades Many years apart. apart yeah. Whereas it's it's been... Seem streamlined a bit yeah. more. Well, the Secret Wars took a year to come out, publishing wise, but they were only gone a couple of days, weren't they? Yeah. In the actual story, so yeah, all right. For a reporter, though, Phil seems to have an awful lot of blanks in his knowledge. Okay. There are an awful lot of instances in this where he mentions that heroes did a bad mm. that are easily contradicted or explained if you read their own comics. Now, I get that Phil only sees it from a certain perspective. But at the same time, he's a reporter. So therefore, perhaps he, more than anyone, shouldn't believe everything that he sees on the news. Yeah, I suppose. But when you don't know the secret identities or the lives or the stories of, of the characters and their actions... Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. He doesn't know who the people are really, It's like it? the Spider-Man thing. He can't look into... He saw the events a certain way. Yeah. And even if he looked into it, he'll never know the full story apart from what he saw. Yeah. Because yeah. even if he gets interviews with the players, they will never explain to him, yeah, well, Peter was going through all this shit because Gwen died. Yeah. That kind of thing. And, and Punisher will never say, well, I had to hold him because you know, Peter had a dislocated arm. And yeah. Just... That's true. All right. Uh, issue four has a happy ending. And if the series had finished with issue four... 
Well, it, it doesn't. It's got one of those things where it's the intersecting scenes. Yeah, the doctor realises that Phil's cancer's come back. I'm having, a, I'm having a great time. Oh, God, he's going to have a horrible time. Yeah. I'm so happy. Oh, God, he's going to die. Yeah, um, so Sheldon sees the molecule man fix the earth, and that's where he's first get restored. But it's all just going to go off a cliff. Yeah. So Phil's all dead happy. Like, oh, life's going to be great again. Everything's fine. And the doctor's looking at his x-rays and going, oh, dear. <laughs> oh, well. Salivate. So there's no adverts in this one because being the black and white one has the script at the back. So I don't know what that was about. Uh, chapter five, a whole lot of paper. We're clearly into the 1980s, as we've discussed in the cover, yep. <laughs> where we mocked Rogue and Dazzler's 80s uh, <laughs> let's get physical ensemble. Fashion is just the biggest uh, sign of the times, isn't it? Yeah, particularly the women. In the in the, the worst yeah, outfits you, you, look dated. You can and tell what decade and, it is based on how big the hair is. Yeah, and so you've got things like the Hulk. He's pretty timeless, really, isn't he? Yeah, Pair yeah. of ripped pants. <laughs> but yeah, everyone else. Yeah, yeah. That that was the eighties. Sorry about. You can that. tell what time it was based on uh, what superhero name Hank Pym's going under, though, can't you? <laughs> That's very true. Um, what's the address in what's this? What's the address in this issue? Yeah, uh, Phil's story's tragic now as Marvel well and truly is barreling towards the 1990s. And throughout the story, Busek's used Phil as an extension of the Marvel Universe. His peaks and valleys all match up with the peaks and valleys of the MU. And Phil's been the avatar for the reader as the Marvel Universe. And indeed, the world changes around us. Some people kick back. Yeah. People who don't like change. Like you. I, it's not that I don't like change. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I just think that places have a place. And everything should stay there. Yeah, things have a place. Nothing should change and nothing should ever evolve. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Change is the nature of things. Evolution has done nothing for us. (laughs) I want my thumbs! This world is 2017 years old. (laughs) And has done nothing. (laughs) Uh, That's what the point of the story is. Mm. You know, change happens sometimes around you. Life isn't fair, none of us get out alive. Mm -hmm. There you go. Merry Christmas. Nathaniel said in his email. Uh, again, this goes to what we were just discussing. Phil instantly doesn't like X Factor because they've set themselves up as people who find and arrest mutants, mutant bounty hunters. He doesn't actually know that they are the original X Men and they're doing this to find mutants to give them somewhere to hide. Even though he points out that they're the same people and, and everyone else acts as though it's a shock. Yeah, but he, he doesn't know that's what they're doing. Yeah. He thinks they've become mutant bounty hunters just to earn a quick buck. Mm. So that goes back to what you were saying earlier on. Um, Phil complains that the FF in the new building and the pictures aren't as good as his pictures. Commentary on the art in comics not being as innovative as Kirby. Mm. Possibly. And then Phil has that moment where he... I love that when he's looking at Celebrity Magazine with Four Freedoms Plaza. So what are we there in? Late 80s Four Freedoms Plaza? Yeah. I think so. Something like that. Anyway. Um... He barely recognises the X-Men anymore and actually is of the opinion that their 80s look with Storm with the mohawk and Rogue with the big hair and the let's get physical outfit mm. and Longshot with his mullet and leather. Right. He actually postulates that how they look is affecting how they're perceived. Yeah. That's an old person, that, isn't it? <laughs> well, if you get a haircut, you dress properly. So I, I, I like that. It, it that could be a commentary on the X Men. Ever, yeah. I don't know who's in the X Men anymore. I don't know who's in the X Men anymore. But Chris, you write it. 
I don't know who's in the X Men anymore. <laughs> I haven't known who's in the X Men since 1988. Let's be honest. Uh, again, there's a length of time that's skirted over here. Phil's given anywhere between six and eighteen months to live, but the references in this issue alone range from Amazing Spider-Man 186 to Amazing Spider-Man 283, which is a gap of eight years mm. in real time. But like you said, it doesn't matter, does it? No. Back in Preston and all like that, it makes it look like it's passed over in a, a much shorter period of time. And then um, the mutant Maggie that they helped out last issue shows up. Yeah, which is kind of something you've been waiting for since the first mention. Though. Yeah, since they mentioned her back in issue one. Yeah, the writing in this isn't exactly the subtlest. The, the themes are all there. I mean, I would argue the themes aren't the subtlest. I think the writing is. I think his character work is exemplar. Yeah, but which is what when, when they keep saying, this will be my legacy. Legacy. It's going to be your legacy, Phil. <laughs> your legacy, Phil. So do you think Marvel's is Busiek's legacy? Oh, yeah, definitely. And Ross. Yeah. Despite all the other stuff that they've worked on. Yeah. Say, so I, I don't know. With Ross, I think Kingdom Come. I mean, you can't say that a comic writer can be typecast, but... It's that's what they're going to be known for, really. Well, this is essentially Kurt Busiek is essentially still doing this now, but in Astro City, right? Isn't he? Yeah. This is what he's doing now. He's focusing on the people who live in the world with these remarkable characters. Right. He's just doing it in Astro City now. So, and Astro City wouldn't exist without Marvels. Yeah. So there's a certain commentary that you can read there that Busiek is saying that Marvels will probably be my best remembered work, mm. and it's him going, "I'm fine with that." Yeah. So, alright. Closing the book is the title of, of uh, chapter 6. As you said, not terribly subtle. Yeah. But it does the job. The Fall of the Mutants is uh, is the crossover that led to the X-Men's death. They actually just hid out in Australia. Right, okay. Hopefully they weren't there when uh, they were invaded by the Dominators. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise they just got wiped out. Which would have been quite funny. So uh, why are they fighting the big dinosaurs? Fall, was, I don't was know. that not the Spider-Man story? I've never read Fall of the Mutants. Right, okay. So I don't know where the dinosaurs came from. Are they from the... It's not the land that time forgot. Was um, Where Kezar lives, the yeah, hidden yeah, land. Yeah, right. Yeah, they could be from the hidden land. I don't know. I don't, like I said, I've never read Fall of the Mutants. So I can't say. Um, that ended with humanity having a, a small period of time where they were more accepting of mutants. Ah. Because the X-Men died... Right. Saving the world, even though they just disappeared and reappeared in Australia. Ah, fair enough. It kind of... It, it steals the the power from it, really. Like, if you found out that... You know, it's, say, like, Jesus just killed himself on a cross, then you find out three days later he'd come back and he was just hiding out in a cave somewhere. Or Spock. <laughs> or Spock. <laughs> he just killed himself for his best mates. Yeah. Made Kurt cry. You find out he's just, like, you know, hanging out on the, the, the Eden planet, yeah. <laughs> you right there, Spock? Had a nice nap. You just been just been fighting some Klingons. It's all right though. You just sit on your ass for a bit longer. Because of you, my son's dead, and I've blown the Enterprise up. She is, yeah. mate. But you're all right. So hey, yeah. all these all these noble acts get ruined if you find out they were just chilling somewhere. Yeah, and even Buffy. She you know, died. Superman. Superman dies. Mm, fighting, comes fight, he comes back. He's just chilling in his in his fortress. <laughs> Buffy. Yeah. Well, granted, Buffy was, was actually dead and didn't want to come back. Mm. But, you know. Retcon is a powerful drug. It, it's the retcon <laughs> drug. Yeah. Um, I did like when Maggie comes to talk to him. I thought this was really quite touching and a really very well-written scene. Um, the admission that Phil considered turning her in to protect his family, I thought was really a really human moment. 
Yeah, and I liked it as well because it's, like we were saying earlier, Phil will never know mm. what Peter Parker's been up to and all his backstory. Just He only all, sees the Spider-Man stuff. Yeah, so it's like she idolised him and, and he was a hero in her eyes, but she never knew the human bad side of him. Mm. It's not so much the bad no, side, the, the, bad, the human it's... side of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That to protect his family, which in itself is its, its own nobility, yeah. he was prepared to turn her over and then he was like, no, that's not the right thing to do. And I did something else I really liked was that his neighbour was, so she's a mutant, and he's like, yeah. And he's like, okay. Yeah. And his, ma- his, his neighbour's not bothered. Mm. So not everyone's buying into mutant hysteria. Not everyone's believing that these people are the demon, despite what the media may be telling you. Yeah. He's made up his own mind, and he's willing to help his well, friend and neighbour. The mutants were just the outcasts, so not everyone's anti-Semitic or racist yeah. and all that. Yeah, well, the mutants are just avatars for whatever race is currently being yeah. demonised by the media at the minute, yeah. So yeah. mutants can be anything throughout history, for whatever you want them to be. Which is a shame why they're so forgotten now, considering mm. they could have been such a good storytelling yeah. set of characters. Well, maybe they are, but we don't read X-Men. And X-Men are, by and large, kept very separate from the rest of the Marvel Universe at the minute. Probably because no one knows what's going on with the X-Men. No. If anyone needs a Ground Zeroes reboot, <laughs> it's, it's the, the X-Men. X-Men. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. Mm. I think if anyone does, yeah, needs a complete scraping off of everything that's gone wrong with him over the years. Because is Cyclops dead now, or is he back? Is, is Wolverine still dead? I don't know. I, I saw a panel recently where it's like, I am from the future where I came back and killed me, something like that. <laughs> it's I hate everything about that. Yeah, sentence. somebody posted that to my Facebook page. <laughs> yeah. It's like the old Nova yeah. being brought up to speed about what's happening in the real world. And he's like, and you're Spider-Man now, yeah? And the other guy's dead? No. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the future Cyclops from a childhood timeline where I've been brought back. I hate everything about that sentence. It's that was like, hysterical. You know when people say, like, oh, if you got someone from the medieval times and showed them a mobile phone, they won't know what to do. If you got someone from 30 years back and showed them an X-Men comic, it'll, be, it'll have the same effect. <laughs> Somebody who read comics 30 years ago, yeah. give them a modern X-Men comic, say, right, explain what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Bet they couldn't do it. <laughs> oh, do you like that? <laughs> Oh, very funny. A lovely subtle bit in this issue. The We've established that Maggie can see into people and diagnose the health problems, which is what she's doing in Papua New Guinea. There's a moment where she looks at Phil and her eyes glow, mm. and then she just puts her head in her hand as she realises that he, he's too far gone. There's nothing she can do about it. Yeah. There's nothing she can do to help him. And he obviously doesn't realise what she's just done. Mm. Oh, that was brilliant. I absolutely love that bit. Um, the parade that Marcy's at for the Fantastic Four is uh, from Fantastic Four 312, which I think was the Steve Englehart run. Are we into Steve Englehart at that point? I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think so. And then I like Phil... the set of panels where he dies. Yeah, I like the set of panels where he dies. Because he dies just watching his family. And his head just rolls and, yeah. And then he's gone. And uh, then you've got all the final, the funeral and everything. Some wags on the website I was reading have pointed out that Phil died at just the right time. Can you imagine his reaction to the 90s? Yeah. <laughs> possibly would have been a bit... If he didn't die of cancer, he would have died of a heart attack. <laughs> and the 90s rolled around. Mm. But no, it's a lovely... It's a very well-written scene, isn't it? And uh, the funeral at the end, J. Jonah Jameson's there, Robbie Robertson's there, they're going to finish his book and... All that stuff. So all that's lovely. These pages are really nice in black and white. Yeah. I think. I don't know if they'd be any better in colour. 
but I like because because it's not inked. I think just seeing the detail in the pencils is really nice. Oh, that's really good. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that Boussiet kills Phil Sheldon off. Yeah. So nobody else can come along and tell his story. Boussiet killed him. Well, not just that, but it's kind of, this is the type of story, again, the Hammer and Legacy, mm. would it can't really end any other way. No, it can't. Because his legacy is his children, mm. who will finish what he thought his legacy was originally going to be, yeah. which was his, his second book. Mm-hmm. His book about the Marvels. A far more personal story than Marvel's, Boussiet plays up the way Phil Sheldon's life and motivations are intrinsically linked to the Marvel heroes right up to his death. But it's also fair to say there's a lot of commentary on the fan base in this story as well. All things being equal, Eye of the Camera isn't about the Marvels. Just look at the amount of times that only appear on newspaper covers or TV. This story is about Phil, and by extension, a man who learns he's going to die and what that does to him and his family. It's exquisitely well written from that point of view, with the references merely being icing on the cake rather than the filling. The art suits the work. Alan Clanto isn't required to give us those big jaw-dropping scenes that Alex Ross did. He's here to draw real life and he does it well. I can see why this isn't as well regarded as Marvel's. It's not as splashy for one, but it's a lovely and touching story and I think it's just as good in its own way. What do you think? Uh... I think it's a good story, hmm. but I do understand why it's been forgotten. It doesn't deserve to be forgotten, does it? No, but I can see why it has yeah. been. It's no, it's not as good as Marvel's. It's not as new as Marvel. Marvel's. It's never been as publicised. Marvel's constantly gets reprinted, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas this got one trade paperback, and that's it. It's never got a hardcover, I don't think. Mm. And it's, it has just largely been forgotten, which it's, is a shame. It's a smaller, more personal story. Yeah. But Marvel's is more impactful, iconic, stronger. Yeah. Okay. So did you like it? Yeah. Yeah. Apart from the first issue. As a five-issue story arc. <laughs> as, as a pro, a, a prologue and five issues. <laughs> yeah. It was all right. I, I, I think it's very underrated. But I do wonder how much of it is. I think it's underrated because it's in the shadow of yeah, it's in the shadow of Alex Ross. Yeah, if Alex Ross had drawn this, hmm. there'd be big absolute editions of both of them, wouldn't there? Yeah. So yeah, that's a shame. All right, well that's it. That's it for Christmas 2015, 2016, isn't it? Yeah. 2017. Michael's now off back to uni. Um, we've not got any plans to do anything over New Year or whatever. New Year half term or whatever your next holiday is because you're going to be busy yes so we don't know when the next episode's going to be it may even get to summer it probably will be before you hear from us again so have a good first quarter of 2017 and uh, we'll see you next time whenever that time will be thanks for listening bye bye goodbye
icon or an instamatic camera. Camera! I don't like you. Do you get the picture? Can you guess where I am going to stick your camera? Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production and a Two True Freaks presentation. The opinions of Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew. Uh, music used in the show is for review purposes only and we believe that comes under fair use. If you want to drop a few tips in our tip jar, feel free to use the Two True Freaks Amazon link, which costs you nothing, but gives us a little something to help produce content like this. Michael and Andrew are both on Twitter and on Facebook, and correspondence to the show can be sent to Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com. <laughs> 